Good morning, everyone, and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. My name is Leah M. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater and your moderator for today. Today is Sunday, December 8, 2019. The share ID for Friday, December 6 are the following. For the 7 a.m. Eastern Big Book Study, 13,768, that's 13768. And for the 10 a.m. Eastern Big Book Study, 13,770, that's 13770. This morning, A Vision for You presents, I vaguely sense. We come to Overeaters Anonymous as a result of the frustration, suffering, and despair we experience in our disease of compulsive overeating. Beaten into a state of reasonableness, we come to the realization that we are doomed. The big book teaches us we have a twofold illness, the allergy of the body and the obsession of the mind. The allergy of the body is a bad problem. However, the big book teaches us that we have a problem worse than that. The big book says it's our main problem. We've got a mental problem, a twist. We've got a problem with our mind. The big book was written as a set of directions, a textbook for doing the 12 steps. The promise of the 12-step process is a spiritual awakening to overcome the obsession of the mind and to bring about recovery. Our experience of powerlessness becomes the driving force of desperation to be ready and to be willing to do anything which will free us from the bondage of our affliction. Such is the paradox of the 12-step recovery process, strength arising out of complete defeat and weakness, the loss of one's old life as a condition for finding a new one. Joining us this morning to share her remarkable story of transformation as a result of the 12 steps, is Mary Jane Z, a recovered compulsive overeater from Kentucky. And it's with great pleasure and appreciation that I welcome Mary Jane to the line this morning. Good morning, Mary Jane. Good morning, Leah. I'd like to extend a warm thank you to you and to the hidden crew behind the scenes that makes this meeting possible day in and day out. And to those of you here on the line with me today to listen to my story. I'm so grateful for the laser-focused message of the big book this meeting espouses. And I'd like to offer a prayer. But before I do that, I want to pause so I can remember the connection we all have to each other through our higher power. God, please guide my words today and help me to be of service. So once again, good morning. I am Mary Jane Z, a recovered compulsive eater in Kentucky. I've written this out because I didn't trust it. This is a lot longer than a three minute share. So you're gonna hear pages turn, lots and lots of pages. So I vaguely sensed I was not being any too smart. When I read those words on page 36 of the big book about four and a half years ago for the first time, 
They hit me like a ton of bricks because that's the way I felt my entire life. So let me tell you a little bit about my life. I'm 63 years old. I'm a grateful member of two 12-step fellowships. I entered the rooms of OA about eight years ago through the rooms of Al-Anon. I've lived in Louisville all my life, raised in a middle-class home with two loving parents who endured heartbreakingly tragic childhoods and through God's grace found each other and built a life. I'm the youngest of three. I have two much older brothers. And it seems like I was a little girl they had all been waiting for. So they indulged and spoiled me. I was the entitled princess, a role I have continued to reprise many times in my life. By the time I was six, however, my brothers had left home and the effects of the past of my parents' unhappy childhood started catching up with them. They were tired and other interests took their attention from me and I was basically left alone to wander the house and the neighborhood. In addition, we had a very close relationship with my mother's extended family, but many of them started getting sick and eventually dying. And I felt the emptiness and grief in that house and it mirrored the hole I felt inside me. So I filled that hole with food, and there were no real consequences. There seemed to be a never-ending supply of food, either at my house or the neighbors, and I was a hyper and skinny kid and could eat whatever, whenever I wanted, and I did. My eating gave me the attention I craved. People always commented on it. The way I ate became part of my identity. And since I never seemed to gain weight, I secretly believed I was exempt from any consequences. I believed I was the one special person in the universe who could eat and never gain weight. Along the way, I did develop some judgments and opinions about people who did gain weight. I did have compassion for severely overweight people, figuring they just couldn't help themselves. But those people who were just 20, 30, maybe 40 pounds overweight, please, what the heck was wrong with them? Why didn't they get themselves together and lose weight? My father had a series of heart attacks when I was growing up and was forced to take early retirement, which affected our financial situation. My older brother came home to help my dad sort out his future, and I remember him saying to my dad, Gosh, you did such a good job preparing for your death. You have this great life insurance policy. But you are in real trouble right now, and I'm not sure what you can do. I was almost 18 when I overheard that conversation, and it scared me to the core of my being. What was going to become of us? I retreated to the kitchen. Well, two months after I turned 18, my dad had a fatal heart attack and my mother's financial situation was set due to that life insurance policy. But her heart was broken, and even though she lived for 30 more years, in her own words, she died when he died. And I split my life in trying to escape and avoid her so I wouldn't be like her on one hand, and on the other, 
I was always there trying to rescue her from her depression. In high school, I vaguely sensed I was not being any too smart. My nickname was Space Cadet. I was not a stellar student. Quite often, I was reprimanded for my hyperactive body and mouth. I equated the corrections as condemnation on me as a person, and I secretly believed I was nothing but trouble and that I was stupid. In spite of that, I loved school for the social aspect. It was the 70s, and the culture of rock and roll and drugs was in full swing, and I happily joined in. Since I believed I was nothing but trouble, I got into quite a bit of it. But page 20 and 21 tells me I was just a hard drinker because I don't think I was an alcoholic or a drug addict because two weeks before my dad died, he made a tearful plea to me begging me to stop. And when he died, I did. I stopped using drugs altogether and I rarely had a drink again. Right after my dad died, I had a short-lived religious conversion, and I set about trying to become a better person. During my 20s, my eating took a backseat to taking 10 years to finish college, establishing a career, plus my favorite pastime, refining and perfecting my ability to pursue and discard men. I plowed through two marriages, I met husband number two while married to number one and had met future husband number three while attached to number two. At 28, I paused long enough to look in the mirror and ask myself, what the heck am I doing? Was this the person I wanted to be? No, it was not. I hated who I'd become. Once again, I vaguely sensed I was not being any too smart. And let me add the next part of that sentence, but felt reassured. I felt reassured if I rededicated myself to the Catholic religion of my youth, if I continued in therapy, if I read and put into practice every self-help book that was published, if I focused really hard at my job, if I was the best daughter, sister, cousin, aunt, friend, if I could prove to everyone that I knew the exact right thing to do, say, be, you would acknowledge my worthiness and I would be okay. After that pause of four years, I married number three at the age of 32. This time, I knew I was being smart. I had my act together. I had arrived. And I was reassured because I was marrying someone who was intelligent, had a great job, wanted nothing more than to give me whatever I wanted, came from a big family. I was reassured we, because we moved into what I considered the best neighborhood in the city. I was reassured because we had what I considered glamorous jobs. I was reassured because we attended the right church. And I was reinsured because we had two children exactly at the times I planned to have them. I quit my job to stay home and raise those children the way I knew. That way I knew I would produce the exact type of children someone like me should have. And to make doubly certain that would happen, I homeschooled them until high school. 
On the outside, I felt very smug and self-satisfied that I was doing everything possible to ensure the outcome I needed to maintain the image of the perfect wife, homeschool mom, neighbor, caregiver for an aging mother and aging mother-in-law. But just under the surface, I felt a terrible clawing of impending doom, that I was a fraud with no idea what I was doing. And while I wasn't fully aware of it at the time, I judged and pitied all the other moms working and non-working. I was convinced my two little science projects would turn out so much better than theirs. As it says on page 61, is he not a victim of the delusion that he can wrest satisfaction and happiness out of this world if he only manages well? I relish the role of parent, neighbor, and caregiver. I fancied myself the world's foremost authority. I used to picture myself as a water pitcher, pouring myself out to everyone during the day. Sadly, there was very little of me left to give to my husband at the end of the day. I vaguely sensed I was not being any too smart. Somewhere in there during my 30s, food started to play a more prominent role in my life. I loved cooking and baking, being the ultimate homemaker, and quickly figured out if there was going to be enough to actually serve to the family, I better cook double batches so there would be enough for me. I didn't see that as a problem. I just loved food. After the 50-pound weight gain with the first child, I struggled violently and surprisingly to lose that weight and was successful. The 40-pound weight gain with the second was more difficult. I couldn't believe this was happening to me. I wasn't, this wasn't supposed to happen to me, but I did lose that weight. And in the subsequent years, as I gained 10 pounds and lost it and was amazed that it would come right back and I'd lose it again, and then it turned into 20 pounds, on and off, on and off, three to four times a year, trying everything in that pamphlet that we have. <laughs> I, did, I tried every diet, everything. I was never much of an exerciser, but at the encouragement of my husband with the ominous warning that if I didn't start exercising before 40, it would be a losing battle to succeed with a healthy lifestyle after 40, I started various forms of exercise. And it helped keep off the weight until my intake started exceeding my output. The story in the back of the big book on page 423, Window of Opportunity, has a very telling sentence. The primary difference between alcoholics and non-alcoholics is that non-alcoholics change their behavior to meet their goals, and alcoholics change their goals to meet their behavior. Everything started to take a backseat to my food consumption. My children were older now, and I had a job as the neighborhood dog walker and pet sitter. And that job afforded me extra money and venues to hide out in, isolate, and eat, with a very good reason. I was taking care of other people's pets. While my youngest was struggling to adjust to being in a real school, I was in a food fog. I tried to micromanage his life, and as he started to make one poor choice 
after another, I became more and more frantic. The cracks in the foundation of my perfect family life were the invitation to join Al-Anon. And in that fellowship, I learned many valuable truths. I was happy to see that a relationship with God was emphasized because I smugly knew I already had a pipeline to God. I worked the steps quickly and attended many meetings a week. My first sponsor was also an OA, and she shared her story and experience from time to time. About nine years ago, with my oldest child off of college and the youngest sinking deeper into depression, self-mutilation, self-medicating with a variety of substances and occasional suicide threats, the stark contrast between the two was unbearable. How could my perfect plan get so far off track? How could this be happening to me? My solution was either to hide out at night at another home, binge watching TV and eating, or making the rounds of drive throughs and getting takeout restaurant food and laying on the couch and eating and watching TV all night. And then spending the next day relentlessly exercising trying to keep my 40-pound weight gain to just 40 pounds. Bitterly, I realized I was one of the people I had judged so harshly about not losing the weight when they didn't have that much to lose. And my smug plan to raise two super children was also in shambles. I was standing at the kitchen counter, as I had done for the past 20 years, shoveling food into my mouth when I realized, I told myself every day, one day I was going to stop doing this. When did I think that day would come? And the other frightening realization was, I realized in Al-Anon, I said I'd turn my will and my life over to a power greater than myself. But at that moment, I understood food was really my God. I'd like to tell you I didn't pass go or collect $200, and I went straight to an OA meeting and started on the road to recovery. But I resisted for a few more months until I could barely get off the couch, and I had formulated my own suicide plan. But somewhere inside me, the will to live was there, and I remembered a program phrase, phrase you can't think your way into right action. You have to act your way into right thinking. So I asked if I could go with my Al-Anon sponsor to her OA meeting. And it was there I heard the first hopeful words that made sense to me. Our weakness is our strength. I got a sponsor, and my first food plan was three plates of food a day, piled as high as I wanted. I was to text her what I was going to eat before I ate it. And after that, I was not to eat anything else, no matter what. We worked the steps in the OA workbook, and that worked for a while until I started lying to her about what I was eating. And before I knew it, I was back in the food, embarrassed and humiliated. I finally told her the truth, and she promptly said, Oh, I see one of your core character defects is honesty which I didn't like so much to hear. And internally, I dismissed her observation. 
I was a very honest person. Until it kept happening with the food, and I noticed my dishonesty in other areas of my life. This cycle went on for a couple of years, and my enthusiasm for OA waned, but I never stopped coming to meetings. I remember sitting in meetings with a bitter attitude, hearing Tradition 3. The only requirement for OA membership is a desire to stop eating compulsively, and realizing I wasn't even sure if I had the desire. Except I deduced, I did go to the meeting, so maybe somewhere it was there. About five and a half years ago, our local retreat hosted a fellow from Maine who was the sponsor of a local member, and her presentation was on the Big Book Step Study way of working the steps. It was intriguing, and a local meeting was formed, and I started attending. I'm sure I'd been exposed to the Big Book in other meetings, but it didn't register with me. These people said they were recovered, talked about entire abstinence, and only using the big book to work the steps. Intrigued as I was, I was still more interested in dieting with group support. And even though my sense of isolation and despair started growing, I waited a year before I asked someone to be my sponsor. Also during that time, someone visited our local meeting from Nashville. And after the meeting, they said to me, if you want to hear a great meeting with unbelievable recovery, you should dial into a vision for you. I took the meeting info, but scoffed to myself, phone meeting? That's ridiculous. What can you possibly get from a phone meeting? I tried to dial in one or t once or twice, but got put off by all the numbers you had to punch in, and I gave up. I listened to one or two of the special editions and did find them interesting, but I didn't pursue it any further. Once I was again in enough pain to change, I asked a local big book fellow to sponsor me. I agreed to write out my red, yellow, and green light foods and to abstain from the red light foods. I agreed to weigh and measure my food I agreed to text my food before I ate it, and I gave up artificial and natural, natural sweeteners, but was allowed to have them if they were the fifth ingredient or less. The year I sat in the big book step study meetings before I started working the steps, I remember scoffing at my fellows who took more than six months to work the steps. I knew when I started working them, I was gonna do it fast and be a star. I had to have 30 days of abstinence before I began. And when I had that, we started reading the big book. I was told to look for the instructions, the warnings, and the promises. It was all very confusing, but felt somewhat mystical. I took lots of notes, looked up lots of definitions, agreed I was powerless, and my life certainly was unmanageable. The God thing again was no-brainer. Of course there was a God. I knew that. I had the inside track on what and who God was. However, I was very uncomfortable with the idea 
that other people got to choose what their higher power was. But oh well, I'll try to focus on me and my God. And maybe if I was a good enough example, they would all come around to my way of thinking. I understood the third step decision was to finish the rest of the steps. So I started writing my fourth step. And two years, eight notebooks later, I was demoralized and exhausted. Full disclosure, I did not write every day for two years. I wrote sporadically and then hid out and binge watched TV for weeks on end, occasionally falling off into relapse and then crawling back. At the end to finish, I went to my sponsor's house once or twice a week for an hour and sat at her kitchen table writing until I was finished because I wouldn't do it by myself on my own. It took several weeks and many hours to read my fifth step. And I had a small sense of accomplishment. We read six and seven, and I started my eighth step list and writing out my ninth step amends, maybe even completed one or two. Then I just lost interest. I'm not even sure what happened. It's a blur. I do know I vaguely sensed I was not being any too smart. That was in the fall of 2017. A bit prior to that, in July of 2017, my depression and isolation was increasing. The name Vision for You popped into my head. And I started listening to the meetings and saw on the website there was going to be a conference. So I registered to go. I thought, what have I got to lose? I'm miserable. I went and met some lovely people. And while I was there, I felt like an outsider and a fraud the entire time because everyone seemed so happy, joyous, and free. And I thought I was doing what they were doing, but I didn't have what I felt there. I saw someone at the conference who intrigued me. There was something not only about her eyes, but her whole demeanor. I noted her name, but I was too afraid to talk to her. So I went home and kept doing the same things, expecting different results. When I didn't finish my nine step amends, I knew I needed to do something else. So I went to a local AA group and participated in a rapid big book study and did do a few more amends, but still didn't understand steps 10, 11, or 12. Finally, in November 2017, I confided to a local friend that suicide thoughts were back. She urged me to seek outside help, and I agreed to make an appointment. But I also told her I really, really believed there was something to the 12 steps. And just maybe that woman I saw in Newark might be able to help me. But I was sure she wouldn't have any time to help me. My sweet friend once again urged me to reach out saying at least if I asked, and if she said no, at least then I would know, and I would be free to search for someone else. So on November 26th, I sent her an email, and on November 27th, 2017, we began reading the big book together. We went through the doctor's opinion. 
She asked me to listen to two special editions on abstinence, which really helped me understand entire abstinence. I thought I understood entire abstinence, but after listening to those, you can't unhear what you hear. I had heard I'm powerless, and I agreed I was powerless. But in the past, that had always served as a great excuse as to why I relapsed. I'm powerless. Finally, I understood that while I'm powerless, I'm not helpless. Food doesn't just magically fly off the plate into my mouth. I have to put it down 100% and understand I'll be sitting with insanity and discomfort for a while. It's something like, I think, intentional suffering as I cross over to the shore of recovery. It took me a bit to comprehend that. Kind of reminds me of the phrase, I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other God before me. Until the food is down, there was always that cognitive dissonance, that always uneasiness of thinking about it, even if I wasn't eating it. I had experienced the phenomenon of craving the feeling of growing fangs and the mandate to eat. And I certainly experienced the mental twist that led me back to the food. I now understand entire abstinence. I understood the delusion I had been under and I understood if I didn't complete the steps and stay in the steps, this merry-go-round was never going to end or when it did end, it was not going to be a happy ending. I was Jim. And the grim warning on page 35 rang in my head. All went well for a time, but he failed to enlarge his spiritual life. You know, it never really says that Jim makes it. It leaves off with one more journey to the asylum. A chilling, cautionary tale. But it also says self-knowledge isn't enough. So we went on to step two. And she asked me to slow down. In my thoughts, my words, and my actions. And she asked me, where do you find God? I was flummoxed. I don't know. And she questioned me and said, perhaps consider the silence in the pauses between the words, the thoughts, and the actions. She asked me to write each day how I connected with God and to grow that list daily. I've heard it said we can't pray in the beginning steps because our connection is blocked. And I do understand that premise. But if it is as it says on page 55 in the second paragraph, for deep down in every man, woman, and child is the fundamental idea of God, it may be obscured, but in some form or other, it is there. And I believe my connection was beginning to form, and the prayers I uttered helped move me along. I realized my religious beliefs about God were some of the very impediments keeping me from a deeper connection. I had a very narrow, fixed view of what role God was to play in my life and the world. And I had to lay it aside. I stopped trying to know God and just tried to experience God. Once again, I prayed the step three prayer and started writing my fourth step. Somewhere during the writing of my fourth step, 
and several more times, even while making amends. I broke abstinence. I didn't actually binge, but what I ate was not on my food plan. First time, I knowingly drank something with added sugar. I didn't tell my sponsor, swore to myself it wouldn't happen again. But a week later it did, so I saw I needed to be entirely honest. Three other times involved not being willing to speak up in a restaurant. First, I didn't want to be that person that was so picky about my order with the waiter, so I tried to eat around the non-abstinent food. Another time, I did give precise instructions, but they didn't follow them, and I didn't have the guts to send the order back, so I tried to eat around the non-abstinent food. And the last time, I totally misjudged the quantity I was eating and overate. One other time, I was visiting a friend for dinner, and she was so excited that she had researched what I could and could not eat, and she had found these baked vegetable chips. I didn't have the heart to tell her. They weren't on my food plan, so I ate them. And finally, after entertaining in my home, I found myself eating mindlessly off the plates while doing cleanup. Each time this happened, we paused, reviewed the doctor's opinion, the first 43 pages. I listened to the special editions again, and we discussed what I could have done differently. I came to see that I needed, I craved a power. And while I say I'm powerless, anytime I turn to the food, I'm basically saying, sorry, God, the food has more power than you. It seems like food is the drug of no choice. But if I slowed down my thoughts, my words and deeds to a very slow speed, click, 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 like individual frames on film, there was always a point where I made the choice to turn to the food. One of the things I've learned about this book is it's a book of prayers. Anytime I see, we ask. It's telling me to pray. So I asked God, show me how to display powerlessness. And in conversation with my sponsor, many things were revealed. First, while writing the steps, I had to use all the tools of recovery. I was instructed to make outreach calls to recovered fellows and to start building a God squad. I needed to get involved by sharing on the line and by doing service on the line and locally. I needed to be reading the book and writing every day. I need a plan of action. I need to ask and answer, what am I willing to do differently every day to grow in my recovery? I started treating my food prep as a spiritual practice. Altars had always been a part of my life. I now treat my countertops as altars. Food preparation is a divine celebration of offering to my higher power. I finally embraced the phrase from the special edition on abstinence that says, no one is responsible for my abstinence except me. What a sacred trust. I honor it at all times. By phoning ahead in restaurants, asking questions, calling back and reconfirming, getting to the restaurant early to again reconfirm, and now I'm not afraid to tell my family and friends, no thank you, I don't eat that. 
I plan ahead and keep abstinent food with me at all times. I was finished writing my fourth step a few days before Christmas, and we did the fifth step on December 21st. I was delighted. At first, I balked at rushing so fast and was reminded by her, I thought you said you wanted to recover. Yikes, I do, but okay, never mind. I'll finish my writing and be ready. I saw my selfishness, my dishonesty, my self-seeking and my fears, all those patterns of self-will. I experienced the power of praying the sick man's prayer and still do pray the sick man's prayer on a daily basis. I spent my hour alone and was confident I hadn't skimped and all the stones were in place. I was willing in step six and prayed the beautiful step seven prayer. I remember hearing in a talk, it's up to God what gets removed. I can be a good example of a bad example. And for a time, that may be the role I'm supposed to play. But if I pay attention by slowing down my thoughts, my words and my deeds, God does show me. And over time, my rough edges are being sanded away. I made my list of persons and I went over my amends and quickly made them. This book tells me over and over on page 20, our very lives depends on our constant thought of others and how we may help meet their needs. And on page 77, our real purpose is to fit ourselves to be of maximum service to God and the people about us. So many opportunities to be of service. Making the amends has shown me how to be of service. Becoming vulnerable and asking, is there anything you would like to say to me? And listening and taking to heart what is said. Prayerfully writing relationship ideals so I have clear-cut guidelines on how to show up in life. Owning up to embarrassing behavior and telling the secrets that need to be told while somewhat unnerving is absolutely freeing. I've lived a long time and I'm a fast forgetter. I constantly ask God to show me if I've forgotten any amends. And every once in a while, I'll cough up a few. Let's see here. At the same time, I started doing 10 steps, got a step 11 buddy, and really started expanding my prayer and meditation practice. We read the step 10 promises, and they were and continue to be true for me. I am recovered. I am in a complete place of neutrality around food. That is a gift and a miracle. For most of my life, my daily thoughts and actions were all focused around food. And before, while working the steps, I was always terrified I would go back, and I always did. This book tells me that does not have to happen. I have placed my life and will in God's care, and by staying gently pressed into pursuing and growing that connection, the obsession stays removed. I respectfully know I'm not cured, and I ardently go to any lengths 
to stoke the fire of that connection. Jim's warning on page 35 is etched in my memory. Today, I continue to enlarge my spiritual life. Reading in the 12 and 12, especially on page 88 about the 10th step, has been so helpful. For the wise have always known that no one can make much of his life until self-searching becomes a regular habit, until he is able to admit and accept what he finds, and until he patiently and persistently tries to correct what is wrong. And that disturbing thing on page 90 about the spiritual axiom that every time we are disturbed, no matter what the cause, there is something wrong with me. Now, who could ever be bored with life now with that instruction? Putting this into practice and seeing how people are showing up to teach me, if I just pay attention, it's like having a conversation with God all day. Uncover, discover, discard. Another way to be of service, of course, is to sponsor. It's the way to stay recovered. What a privilege to work with these brave women and to be a mirror and a witness for them. Plus, I never tire of reading the big book. The miracles I have witnessed in their lives sometimes leaves me speechless. To me, the 12 steps are an elegant system of spiritual technology. They connect me with the unified, all-pervasive, loving power that is our universe. All I need to do is pause and take a breath. God is there. Due to changes in my behavior, some of my relationships are slowly being changed. Some relinquished, some rebuilt, and that has happened in surprising ways. For the longest time, I saw my children as investments like racehorses who were on this planet to perform for me and do my bidding, or I saw them as hothouse flowers that needed to be sheltered and protected from this cold, cruel world. Now I'm more capable to encourage and let them grow at their own pace. Page 52, the second paragraph, helps me drop long-held beliefs. We had to ask ourselves why we shouldn't apply to our human problems the same readiness to change our point of view. The shrink wrap of victimhood and self-pity has been loosened. My youngest struggled for years with his identity, and five years ago at the age of 22, he realized she is female. In the past few years, Finally, I've been able to be present for her and offer support without being contemptuous and holding on to my old ideas. While she still struggles with her addiction, I'm able for the most part to let her experience the consequences of her decisions. I've seen how being a princess has caused so much harm. And now I'm learning to show up most days as a pilgrim. I'm still experiencing many consequences from long past decisions, mainly made out of fear. 
but I don't see them now as punishments or vindictive unfair judgments. They are just the natural flow of what I set in motion long ago. My beloved God directs my attention to what he would have me do and be. I'm not as afraid of making mistakes because page 87 tells me, having just made conscious contact with God, it is not probable that we are going to be inspired at all times. We might pay for this presumption in all sorts of absurd actions and ideas. And page 146 in tradition four, third paragraph says, we had discovered there was perfect safety in the process of trial and error. And on page 40, 149, even the chief architect in the ruins of his dream could laugh at himself. That is the very acme of humility. So now, when I vaguely sense I'm not being any too smart, I can be reassured because my life and will are under the care of a loving creator and I can ask God what the next right action is to be and if I'm patient or will be revealed. So with that, I'm going to pass. But before I turn it over to Leah to take names, I want to um, ask everyone, ask for some help, because one of the things I've done when I listen to questions on the line, I listen to the people, and if their questions resonate with me, I'll contact them after the talk and talk to them about what they're going through in my experience, strength, and hope. Because, um, you know, I may not answer their question clearly because this is really overwhelming. <laughs> and so maybe you'll hear their question differently or more thoroughly. So I ask you to, to please get in touch with them and reach out and discuss it with them after the meeting is over. So with that, I'm going to pass. Thanks, Leah. Thank you, Mary Jean, for your touching, beautiful, and inspiring story of transformation as a result of the work that we do in these 12 steps and our relationship with God. Your share is greatly appreciated. The share ID for today's presentation, 13,776. That's 13776. Mary Jane's contact information will be given at the conclusion of this recording, so you'll need to stay tuned for that. And we will now transition to a question and answer segment. You can pose a question to Mary Jane by pressing star one to unmute. I need your name, including the first letter of your last name, please. Hi, it's Linda. When? Larry Linda. Linda. Jason K. Jason K. I got you, Larry. Wendy B. Wendy B. Mary Lee. Was somebody, Mary Lee. Anne Marie M. Anne Marie M. Lisa B. Lisa B. There was somebody prior to Larry K. That I missed. The first, the first name that it came was, out. I said Liz S. 
Liz S. Okay. All right. That's a great group. Everybody mute, please, except for, except for Liz S. Uh, I want to thank you for your extraordinary uh, story and also the the fact that you were able to just continue and continue and continue and arrive where you are um, today. And what I did want to ask you is you talked about having a Catholic upbringing. And I wondered whether um, that had an effect on the God that you, or the higher power that you eventually chose, or whether you were able to find a new one, because it was very difficult for me, having a Catholic upbringing, to be able to make some revisions in choosing a new concept of God. And that's my question. Yes, Linda, thank you for the question. And um, yeah, my experience with a higher power, I came in with a very, very defined, moralistic, old-fashioned, I guess, maybe, higher power. And slowly that had to go away. And, and, you know, at one point I was a total atheist agnostic going, there's nothing. It's all a sham. (laughs) This is ridiculous. But, you know, I was asked to start watching life and start, and as I, and as I wrote, wrote out my resentments and fears and I saw how I had inserted myself in things and how maybe if I had just paused, things would have turned out so much differently. And so, you know, slowly but surely, I got listening to different spiritual teachers. I opened up to a completely new higher power, and don't ask me to define it because I can't. Um, but and I and I still continue. Um, and one great thing about writing all those resentments is, you know, I had so many resentments against organized religion, and now I have none. I can go to any house of faith and get something out of it. And and I, I and I'm possibly in the future, I'll go back to one. So, thank you. Thank you. Thank. Thank you very much, Liz S. Larry K. Your turn with a question, please. Yes, thank, Leah. Thank you for your service, Mary Jane. What a beautiful, shining light of recovery. I was very inspired by your talk. And my question, I'm going to go right there to the emotion stuff because that's the powerful, powerful stuff and speaks to me in terms of your recovery. Um, can you speak to, maybe elaborate a little further, a little deeper, if, you, if you'd like to, on um, how program has brought you to perhaps a better place of acceptance with your child, specifically your youngest, I believe it was your youngest that came out. Um, would you be able and willing to speak to that at all? And thanks again sure. for, your, for your service, Mary Jane. Appreciate it. Well, thanks, Larry. And yes, it, you know, it, it's been a long process. It's five and a half, almost six years. And, you know, <laughs> for the longest time, um, it, you know, it was like a knife. You know, it was just an absolute knife. No, 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 child. no, 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 no. You know, but I always knew, I knew there was something different about that kid. But, you know, I just wouldn't believe it. 
and I wouldn't see it and I wouldn't listen to her. I had her life planned out. Absolutely, you're going to this. I got the call. I had the college planned out. You know, I had several career choices she could have choose um, chosen, but and um, I did have to get outside help. You know, I, I did, but it was writing, um, writing, and writing, and writing over and over again. I mean, four step after four step um, to see because I couldn't see my part. I couldn't, and it's like finally. It cracked. It's like, not my life. It's her life. And she wouldn't, nobody would choose that. It's the truth. And, you know, the, the other thing was, you know, my Al-Anon program helped me because with her addiction, I let her live in our home and pretty much isolate and hibernate in that room. And finally, I had to have the police come and have her removed in handcuffs and let her live her own life on the street for three years and um you know then she and, and you know what that was almost the easiest thing that ever happened it was like finally something different and um you know i learned to turn off my phone at night i learned to just tell her i loved her enough to let her die and she walked herself into recovery and was there for a whole year and that was even harder than having her on the streets because i just clumped right back on to what I thought her life should be like. And um, the beautiful people at that recovery facility really helped me, really helped me with that. And um, sadly, she went right back out. But, um, you know, we have a good relationship because my older daughter got married this summer. And, um, you know, the younger one, they had been, they hadn't spoken in years and somehow she came through and came to the wedding and it was a beautiful beautiful time and then that's when she confessed her life was failing and you know i reached out and let her move back home and it, it's it's not gone well so here we are right back where i was three years ago or five years ago older and wiser but you know it's a process and it's trial and error and um I do honor her today, and if I don't hear from her for weeks, um, it doesn't it doesn't kill me. So thanks. Thank you, Larry Kay, for the question. Jason Kay, you're up. Good morning. Thank Star you so one. much for your. Yep. Thank you. Thank you for your share. I really appreciated it and was very moved. Um, I, I have two questions, I guess the simple one. First, how do you handle restaurants and eating out now? And the second one, a little more complex maybe, is do you seem like you were like me and resisting the process of doing the steps and resisting kind of accepting the program and, and doing the work? Uh, why do you think that happens? Why do you think, you know, I see it, why do you think it happens in our fellowship and how do you speak to people or newcomers that are struggling with that same resistance? Thanks. Oh. Sure, I think so. Um, oh, restaurants. Um, you know, I'm, I'm the type, um, I, you know, I don't want to speak up. I mean, it's so funny because I'm so outspoken in my home at times about what people should be doing. But, you know, you can be standing next to me, standing on my foot, and I would just let you um, grind my foot into the ground. I would never say anything to you like, you're hurting me. So um, I really had to learn how to speak up. I mean, I, I, you know, that 
what do we mean by entire abstinence talk and the chef is not responsible for my abstinence. I heard it finally and I became very comfortable just speaking up. So now um, for a long time I had to know exactly what restaurant we were going to and I had to look online and I had to call them and I had to, you know, get the name of the person I was talking to and make sure that they understood. Maybe I'd even go to the restaurant the day of and look. Um, and now I can pretty much, you know, go to a restaurant. I don't have to look online. A lot of times I do. And um, just point blank talk to the chef. And if there's nothing, I always have something with me. Um, that, that talk also gave me permission to bring things with me into a restaurant. And if I have to pay for something that I'm not going to eat and I have them not bring it, fine. Because my food is fuel and nutrition now. And I go to a restaurant to be um, in the stream of life with my friends or family. And um, resisting the process. You know, I, I didn't really believe I was resisting the process. I guess I'm the type that was like, yeah, 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 I want to follow the rules. Let me follow these rules. And then as soon as I figured the rules out, let me break these rules. And so, you know, I, I, I didn't believe that I was powerless. I just didn't. And um, I, I just always thought I can get away with this. I can get away with this. And, you know, for a long, the last few years before this final recovery today, um, I was stark raving abstinent. I mean, I, I, I thought I was abstinent, but I was still ingesting my addictive substances to a small degree. And that that just crazy dissonance of going, this doesn't seem right, but I can do it. Oh, well, who cares? Oh, and just thinking about food, the thinking about food. But, I, you know, it was the pain. It's always the pain that makes you change. I mean, I, I had my suicide plan laid out. And um, I knew it was a problem because every time I thought about it, I got happy. And it's like, that's not normal to have such a light feeling about such a dark thing. So um, I just, I just, there was something I knew that these 12 steps, I'm seeing all those people <laughs> in Newark and, and, and feeling that electric energy and going, it can't be for everybody but me. It, it, it's it's got to work for me. And I, I finally had that belief, and I, I thought about it. Did you know? Did my sponsor was it? My, it was my perfect sponsor that got no. It was my belief that that sponsor <laughs> could do it, and I, my willingness to follow the directions and do exactly what was asked of me. But and, until I was desperate, I I wouldn't do it. Oh. Thanks. Hope that answers. Thank you, Jason K, for your question. Now we'll go to Wendy B. Wendy B, your turn. Yeah, hi. This is Wendy B, uh, recovered in Arizona. And a few of your statements stood out to me, like um, your sponsor telling you to slow down in your thoughts, words, and actions, you know, that consider the pauses between the thoughts and words is where to find God. And um, I stopped trying to know God and just try to experience Him. And then pause and take a breath. God is there. And um, I just was wondering if you wanted to expound any more on that connection, you know, like the, the mystical 
uh, process of how you hear God's guidance and direction. And that's my question. Thank you. Okay. Um, yeah, you know, it's, it's where, where is God? <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I think I really did have the vision of the white man and the beard with the, with the arrows. Um, you know, I, I was a rat in a maze waiting to be punished. And see, you did that wrong. That's why that's happening. And um, just, you know, the, the, there were a few exercises that I was asked to do in terms of, you know, um, writing about, you know, attributes of God and what, the, what I wanted God to be, what I didn't want God to be. And, and then taking that, what I didn't want God to be, and tearing it up and throw it in a trash can. And I did that in, a, in the big book study group um, with a group of people. And it was very powerful, um, you know, but I had to go back to that. Um, so, and just listening to different spiritual teachers, which if you want to call me or text me later, we can talk about, just really opened me up to to the mystical side of life. I mean, just... I, I, since I am a dog walker, I am outside most of the time, and that amazing sky and the trees and the way leaves fall and birds fly, just stopping and not trying to describe it, but just watching. It's and the silence. I've done, um, you know, as part of my Step Eleven experience, I've done s- several wacky things in terms of retreats and um, readings. And um, uh, it, it's helped me that, you know, life is a mystery and I just have to watch it unfold. And the, the, the less efforting I do, the more things happen. And, um, it, yeah, it's, you know, I'm a pretty rapid, let's get it done, let's get it done, let's get it done. But, I, you know, I, I now have a very dedicated um practice of prayer and meditation in the morning and um and I've taken instruction and and I sit no matter what and if I'm really busy I'll try to sit twice a day and I feel like there was something else you asked but I can't remember that was perfect thank you thank you Wendy B Mary Lee R., your turn. Mary Lee R., star one to mute. It's Mary Lee F. I'm sorry. Mary Lee That's F. okay. That's okay. Thank you so much. I'm listening to you going, oh, my gosh, that's me. Oh my gosh, that's me. Oh my gosh, that's me. So, you know, we suffer. I mean, I know that I suffer from this idea that I'm just, you know, my problems are my own and no one else has ever experienced. And that's a crock. And I'm hearing that over and over and over again in this in these meetings, to which I'm fairly new. Uh, and this is the second special edition that I've heard and both of them have been incredibly powerful. You mentioned in your in your talk the uh, the concept of total absence. You actually mentioned that twice, 
that's something I haven't heard since I've been going to these meetings. Could you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Um, it's, uh, you know, not, I only know, I've only been studying this book for a while, but if you go to the doctor's opinion, it, I don't exactly know what page. There's people in here that could run out here and tell you, oh, here it is, XXX. The only relief we have to suggest is entire abstinence. And, and there's some talks on um, the special edition Vision for You website, which um, I can give you later, uh, that talk about entire abstinence. And um, once you hear them, <laughs> you can't unhear them. And um, th it makes total sense because if we're still negotiating with the food, how can God get in? Because there's that, it's like we're not tuned to the right radio dial. You know, I always had that little <laughs> going on. And I don't have that now. Well, I did while I was writing because of, you know, it's very uncomfortable to put everything down and, and to turn away from it and go in a completely different direction. And, um, I mean, it, it, I, I never... I never was a big fantasy reader. My kids, you know, love the Lord of the Rings and all of that. And I never understood any of that stuff. But, I, you know, I, went, I saw the movies. And let me tell you, walking through this process has been like being in one of those movies or books. You know, it is a holy, sacred um, journey. And, um, you know, I can totally relate to... Um, Gollum with my precious and <laughs> because you know identifying that with my food and, it, and it's got to go away and um, until you know exactly what it is that causes that uh, phenomenon of craving you're doomed thank you Mary Lee F for your question and Marie M your turn. Good morning. Thank you so much, Leah, and um, thank you for your share. I really, really very much appreciated it. Um, I heard you say that um, you changed from knowing God to experience God. I mean, that's what I heard. Can you tell us the difference or tell me the difference between knowing God and experiencing God, and how did you go about experiencing God? Um, well, just kind of like, it's kind of hard to say, not doing so much. I don't have to effort my life away. I don't have to, I've got to make this happen, I've got to make this happen, I've got to make this happen. Now I go, how is this going to happen? How, are, how is this going to work out? Like, well, you know, an example, I was on a bus. I left my phone on the bus. I mean, this was a like a Greyhound bus, and the bus, like, I realized I left my phone, and the bus is driving away, and it's late at night, and I'm like, okay, how are you going to help me with this? <laughs> and, you know, I knew the right next thing to do, and I didn't have to go into a panic. And everything that way, um, I just ask. I ask, and I'm patient, and I know the right answer is coming, and I'm supported. 
I may not be protected. You know, bad things might happen to me. But no matter what, I'm supported. And that power will move heaven and earth to somehow get what I need. may not be what I want. But, and the story is a long story. It's, it's, it's not a, you know, I'm so used to instant gratification. Yeah, need this now. And now it's like, thy will, not mine, be done. And, okay, I, you know, I may never see my child recovered. You know, I, I, I went to Al-Anon and I thought, okay, I work the steps. I work it like a chess board. Hop, hop, hop. I do what I need to do and I'm going to get what I want. And it, and it didn't happen. And the more I stayed there, the more I saw things not work out the way they, I thought they should. And so I just had to quit efforting and accept life right as it is in all its dirty, disappointing, bloody, gorgeous, every, you know, the spectrum. And, and the other thing I've done is, you know, I really have tried to, to keep my resentments down by dropping negative adjectives that feed that negativity. It's not a sucky day. It's, it's, a, it's a gifted day. And, you know, I, I just try to do that with everything when I'm aware of it. And then I experience a much more gracious life. Thank you, Anne-Marie M., for the question. Lisa B., your turn. Hi. Thank you very much for sharing with us and for all the people who helped to make all these programs available and happen. Uh, my question is, do you think it, is possible to, to really guide somebody to develop a relationship with God or must it come from within them and their own walking, trudging? Um, I ask as a sponsor and also as someone continuing to seek, and I want to thank you for... Um, opening up about um, leaving a very defined, comfortable, um, secure sense of God and moving into a mystical. And I'd say that's where I'm at and wanting and growing, but it's very scary. Did it, was it scary for you? So perhaps from all I've said, you can come with a response. Thank you. Bye. Yeah, sure, Lisa. Um, you know, it was scary. You know, it was scary, but uh, I was willing to try anything because I was so <laughs> unhappy. So uh, do I think it's possible to guide someone in a relationship with God? Yes and no. I mean, if the person is willing to listen and be open, then, yeah, you can make suggestions. Um if they're not, no. And, you know, everybody's on their own path. I, I, I 
sometimes share with sponsees about what my belief in a higher power is. Other times I don't because I respect their belief and where they are. And, you know, I, I mean, I, I can be fed from anything because there's truth in all of it. There's some strain of truth. And um, so it, if I love talking about God and my experiences of God and, and different people I'm reading or, and, um, but, you know, it just, it just depends if the, if the, if the person, it's a dialogue and if the person's willing to open up, then yes, but, you know, people recover with a very, you know, standard idea of God and that, and that, that's great. I just, I just couldn't, not with my rubric of experiences. Thank you, Lisa B., for the question. We can take a few more questions. This will be the final invitation. Star one to unmute. Give me your name, first letter of your last name as well. Sally. Simone J. Okay, Sally, you're up first. Please offer your first letter of your last name as well. Yes, Sally B, like boy. Thank you. Um, also known as Shlomi Tana. <laughs> um, thank you, Leah, for moderating. And thank you. I'm sorry, I did not catch the name of the speaker. Um, it's just been phenomenal, really phenomenal listening to you. And I just want to thank you from the bottom of my heart. Um, I am really trying to come back from relapse um, and I remember that um, before I went into relapse I really had a lot of serenity I was in a very good place with my program and um, I was living in the steps and I had a calm that I'd not had calm before and um, since then it's just been really a hellish existence, to be quite honest. And I've tried all different kinds of ideas and things and whatever. And what I keep coming back to is that program really works. Um, so I guess that I believe you said that you had also been through relapse. So I guess I just wanted to ask for a little bit of encouragement and advice. Um, not just for myself, but for anybody else out there who is in relapse and wants to come back. Thanks. Thanks, Lomi. It's Mary Jane Z is my name. And, um, you know, I, I don't know if I was in relapse. I don't think I was ever really abstinent until this time. But, you know, what I do know is there's, <laughs> you got you to gotta know your key ingredients and you can't eat them. That's one thing because they're going to constantly call you back, you know, because of that physical allergy. And then you got to get right back into the steps and uh, work them, you know, with, with the sponsor 
that that has something that you want. I mean, I've heard it said, you know, a toothpick can sponsor you if you're ready, and Bill and Bob coming back from the grave, it won't work if you're not ready. But I do believe you have to have some kind of relationship and belief with the with the sponsor that you're working with that that they have something that you want. Um, but more than anything, you have to be in enough pain that you want to change. That that I mean, I know now from the core of my being that I am a compulsive overeater. There is you you can drill. There, I know it. There is nothing, and I, you know how I display that. I do everything I need to to guard my abstinence, like it's a little flame, you know that you know it doesn't have a um, hurricane lamp on it at first. It's just a very you know I can't do things until I'm on the other side in recovery. So there's many things I had to limit. I mean, I did dumb things, you know, early in in OA. You know, okay, I'm not going to eat sugar, but oh wait, I do a huge cookie party for 50 people in my neighborhood, and they bring all bring five dozen cookies to my house, and I think, you know, I'm I'm only been, you know, I'm all, I'm I'm still eating my trigger foods, but I'm thinking I'm abstinent and. No problem. I am going to breathe through this. I am not going to eat that stuff. Well, that was insane thinking that I could do that. You know, I can't do that. So, you know, the next year, I didn't have that party anymore because I wasn't in a place where I could have that party and be safe. And so I heard it said on the line once, we, we practice these principles in all our affairs. And when we can't, we limit our affairs until we can practice these principles in all our affairs. So, you know, I pumped a ton of program in my brain um, because, once again, I do work alone, so I've got the benefit of listening to AA speakers, special editions, both meetings every day. And, and I did that for the longest, longest time because I couldn't be alone with the thoughts in my head. They weren't that it was not a safe neighborhood. So, um, you know, picking up that phone, you think that you're bothering people, but you're not. Anytime anybody's struggling, you're helping us because I'm remembering how crazy I was when I hear people talk. It's like, oh, yeah, I remember that. And I can encourage you. Um, but, you know, there's pain in putting that food down, and you've got to be willing to do it and pick up the pen. And find those patterns because that's that's the key is, is learning we're not we're all not that unique there's only so many patterns that we're doing and then really getting a thorough understanding of them in the third and fourth column and then 10 stepping our lives away so we could we can remain that way so thanks thank you Sally B Adrian N Hi, this is Adrian. Um, you said something about self-mutilating, and I've experienced that when I was uh, a child. I was abused, and the only way I could tolerate the pain was self-mutilate, make the, that pain, uh, the emotional pain, go away. 
And I find that I do the same thing as an adult and now as a senior citizen with the food. So I've, I have long-term abstinence, and I, I do a lot of service. I take care of my handicapped parents. I help my kids, my spouse. Um, I started doing service on the group level and the intergroup, and then I got thrust into region and world service level. And I started feeling so abused because when I asked for help from the people around me, I was turned down. And I and then when I had to step back a little bit from helping others, they got mad at me. Like as if it was something that like it was my job to do this stuff for them. And so I started eating again, and now I see... Adrian, I love, yes. thank you for sharing. However, can we form a question, please, in the interest of time? Yes. How do you stop that cycle? Like, we're not supposed to turn down service. So how do we stop that service, that cycle of people asking us... Thank you. Thank you. I think the question is yeah, obvious. I understand it. Thank you. Yes, Adrian. Well, um, what you were describing there was not doing your inventory work. And so the buildup of human emotions took you over and grabbed you and drug you back. And, you know, now if you're in the food, the first thing you've got to do is put down those substances again. And I, boy, do I understand that I, I did not self-mutilate, but I walked in on my kid one day when she was, and I looked at that and I thought, I get that totally. I actually told her that, I get that. I shut the door and I thought, screw it, I'm eating. You know, and um, I thought she's got a therapist, they can deal with it, I can't deal with it. And uh, so, but that's infinite. If you're picking up the food, it's because the buildup of human emotions drove you back. So now you've got two problems. <laughs> you're you're experiencing the physical allergy, but that you've got to deal with that mental twist because um, you know, I mean, you've got a story going on, and the other program I go to might be of help to you with that um, because. Uh, we, there's discretion and discernment involved in, in taking on things. And I know when anyone anywhere reaches out for help, but there are limits. And, you know, only your inventory work can lead you to the right answer. So hope that helps. Thank you, Adrian N., for the question. Barbara E., your turn. Uh, good morning, Mary Jane. Thank you so much for your incredible story. Bravo. Your journey was such a miracle, and your bravery to remove your child from your home is, in my opinion, heroic. You took a very serpentine path, at least in my opinion, from what I heard, to get to where you are today in 2019. How did you finally reach your bottom or what was your bottom where you said enough is enough I'm sick 
of this. I've got to do something with my life. I'm dying. Thank you. I'd appreciate it. Thank you, Barbara E. And I hope your recovery is going well with your hip. Um, the, um, you know, I mean, that was it. I mean, I was just in so much pain. I mean, I had the, I had the suicide plan. It was like, okay, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to get alcohol. I'm going to get a knife. I'm going to get barbiturates. I'm going to swallow the barbiturates with alcohol. I'm going to stand at the bridge and I'm going to jump off and stab myself at the same time. You know, and it, and it was like, yeah, yeah, that's, that's what I'm going to do. That makes perfect sense. And somewhere I heard that and went, you're crazy. Do you hear that? Do you, do you, if you said that out loud, they'd put you away. You have, that is not a solution. Well, it is a solution, but you're going to be dead. And you're going to be good to no one. And what, what, was, what is this life? You know, because I did have a belief in a higher power. And my belief was that my life was a gift. And that that's not a good idea to do that. So um, just it was that merciless pain of going around and around. And, and it took a long time. I mean, I went to many therapists. And I, I, I can't, the, the last two I went to, they kept telling me, have you heard of Al-Anon? <laughs> oh, my God. I've been going to Al-Anon for years. But I just I couldn't hear the message. And I didn't really hear the message until the big book. And I, and I, and I struggled with the, wait a minute, Al-Anon tells me I have to take care of myself. And this book's telling me I have to be a service. What the hell? They're telling me two different things. But that's not true. They're, they're not telling me that at all. I now understand it's, it's, it's a coin. There's two sides to it, but it's basically work the steps and you will be guided to a solution. And, and finally, I don't know, it just it, divine mercy of, of reaching out. I mean, when I wrote that email, I thought she's never going to help me. And thank God, you know, and, and if she hadn't, have, I would have, I'm, I'm pretty, well, I would have asked her, you know anybody else because I, I I knew I was down for the count so with that thanks thank you Barbara E our final question for the morning comes from Simone J thank you so much um, <clears throat> My question to you is um, thank you so much your writing was so beautiful and eloquent um, I am, um, I have been a serial relapser. Thank God, by the grace of God, I am recovered, well, recovering today. I'm working with uh, somebody going through the big book. My question is, um, how do you, um, I guess there's this expectation from me that if I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing, and if I'm recovering and all the rest of it, I'm going to be happy and I'm going to be okay. And yesterday I had a really tough day. I was abstinent, and I can't see much reason, so to speak, but I was just grumpy and awful, yelling, um, yeah. And I just, I guess I have this expectation that I've, every day has got to be Clyde Nine if I'm working the program. So thanks. Yeah, boy, you know, I mean, this program does promise that we're going to be rocketed into the fourth dimension and happy, joyous, and free. And I do experience those moments many times a day. But, you know, 
there's sadness in my life. Lots of things are not turning out like I thought. And um, this program has given me the gift of tears. I can actually experience my feelings instead of stuffing them. So I can cry and I can be sad, but somehow I know there, that tension between self-pity and grief. And, you know, it's a fine line. That's all this program is, is a question of balance. And, um, you know, I don't believe I have to be happy all the time. But I do have an abiding sense of joy underneath it all, that it's unfolding exactly as the way it should be. And, and I'm just a divine servant um, or a servant helping the divine. So, um, that, yeah, I don't. You know, I don't feel like I have to work 10 steps every time I'm not happy. Um, but sometimes I do. If it, if I can tell, it's, you know, I, I feel like I've become the princess in the pea. The longer I've gone on, I've gotten more and more sensitive, and I can't sit in uncomfortable feelings. So I do have to work a 10 step. And sometimes I can do that quickly because it's a pattern that, you know, I've seen and other times it's in camouflage and I don't recognize it as the same old pattern and I have to do an in-depth four step and write it out and, and see it that way. Um, but it's, it's that constant pressing in and knowing, you know, there, no matter what, you know, the, I mean, there's so many songs from my uh, Catholic faith that come to mind that just, you know, they bubble up in me and I'll find them on YouTube and play them because I know, you know, that there there is a plan, a divine plan. And, you know, in bending, there's some grief, but there's also joy. And, you know, every day is a gift. Every day. And I, I don't have the luxury anymore of being in a bad mood. I don't, I, I don't want to be in a bad mood. And some of the situations that I've been in in the last couple of months, I heard a Al-Anon speaker talk. She said, I may not like the situation, but I can like how I show up in the situation. So, you know, part of my practice in terms of what can I do differently, you know, I put my key in that ignition and I ask God, direct me as I drive. Before I put my hand on a doorknob and I go in someplace, I pray and I ask God, Please direct my thinking and guide what comes out of my mouth. Before I answer any phone call, I say that same thing. And, um, you know, it becomes a muscle that gets stronger and stronger. And, um, you know, there's so much joy. And I can now I could not be happy for anybody else that was happy. I, I mean, we're surrounded in our neighborhood now by young families with young children. And I wanted to spit venom at him because I wanted another ride on that merry-go-round of having children. Dang it, I wanted to do it again because it didn't get, it didn't turn out. And now I can be so happy for them and see their joy and, and just enjoy their joy. And, and boy, is that a gift. So it, it's, it's a process and you just, just keep leaning in and keep looking as to what, what's the motivation behind the darkness. And it'll be uncovered and you can release it and let it go. That's Thank all. you, Simone. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Simone J., for your question. Thank you to everyone who posed questions this morning. And of course, thank you, Mary Jane, for your beautiful and remarkable and moving 
story of transformation as a result of your spiritual work, the 12 steps, and a relationship with God. Thank you for giving so much of yourself on the line this morning. And we're oh, going to close an from Paige. It was a, an absolute delight. Thank you. Thank you. We're going to close from page 164. You'll notice that it's in a chapter entitled A Vision for You. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then.